You're listening to the Living Leadership Podcast, growing disciple-making leaders. Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast. I'm Marcus Honeyset. Please click the link below to subscribe, receive notifications when new episodes go up. Today we're going to be thinking about Christian ministry and fear. I love the movie The Martian. If you haven't seen it, I recommend it. It's a great disaster movie. I particularly like its strapline. Stuck on Mars, Matt Damon, all alone, says, help is only 140 million miles away. That only, only 140 million miles away, so beautifully captures the sense of abandonment, isolation and helplessness that the central character has to wrestle against in order to make it home. I've spent several years now researching how Christian workers experience fear, and I've come to the conclusion that most if not all of us, find that fear is a driver in our ministries, at least at some point. It's certainly been the case in my life. After years working long and hard in university evangelism, and then mentoring leaders for churches, I started to notice in myself a pattern of depressive or anxious mood episodes. My friends called it my autumn wobble because it always hit me in the autumn. But I ploughed on, I didn't get any help. And then I experienced a painful tragedy in my life. Even then I thought I could get through it if I just diligently kept putting one foot in front of the other. Until six months later, when I spent some time coaching somebody with a ministry difficulty, and found that the conversation, an unrelated conversation with them, completely unexpectedly tipped me straight over a cliff. I don't know why that conversation was the trigger. Just that I was emotionally totally maxed out, and all of a sudden I found myself over the edge into rampaging fear and a desperate desire to flee Christian leadership. I didn't just go a little bit off the cliff. I went headlong. I started to catastrophize about all kinds of things. I hadn't been expecting it. It seemed disproportionate to the immediate presenting issue in that conversation. Thankfully, at that point, I did get some good help, and as I started to process what I had been through, I came across more and more Christian leaders who said to me, me too. I've also experienced periods in my leadership journey when I found myself tipped into anxiety, fear, catastrophizing, with no way to process it or people to help me figure out what I'm experiencing. And almost without exception, everybody who said that said, I thought I was the only one. So that set me about trying to explore the contours of what takes Christian leaders into fear, and I found the process of trying to describe it helped me to put some shape on things that were otherwise quite real, but formless. They were scary, hard to get a handle on. Now I do want to say that uh, I'm not suggesting that other professions don't produce fear and anxiety. But I am suggesting that Christian ministry has some unique factors that are worth exploring, not least of all because we are the ones who help others. So the devil would love to use fear to paralyse us and then stop them receiving help, encouragement, spiritual nurture. By fear, I mean that apprehension that we're going to be overwhelmed to our harm. It's a multi-layered thing that very often we can't tease completely apart. 
often rooted in thinking that what we're hoping will provide security and safety isn't going to bear the weight of our need. A prevailing state of mind that is the opposite of feeling safe, the opposite of peace and trust, and the embracing of an unhealthy emotional life that goes with it. My other assumption is that fear is one of the things that is opposite to thankfulness. If thankfulness is about trust, faith, delighting in God's love and holiness, then fear is designed to take us out of that space. Perfect love drives out fear. Well, Satan would love to use fear to drive out perfect love. I want to describe to you what I believe are three common stages on the route into ministry-related fear that I've heard repeated many times. Stage one is imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome seems to be the first step for many into ministry-related fear. And by imposter syndrome, I mean the idea that sooner or later I am going to be unmasked as a fake or a fraud. We all are regularly involved in some things we know how to do, and some things that we don't know how to do. But we're tempted towards responding to needs and demands that we don't know how to deal with by adopting a serene persona that is at odds with our incompetence, our lack of capacity, or emotionally what's going on behind our mask. Psychologically, I am told that weakness and powerlessness are the things that produce imposter syndrome. And of course, weakness and powerlessness are precisely where we're meant to be living in Christian ministry. People try to get out of weakness and powerlessness by becoming control freaks or waiving our qualifications. But the thing that God wants is people who minister out of us being weak and having a mighty saviour whom we're reliant upon. Not saying I can be super strong, Marcus, you come and be like me and come under my covering for safety and security, but I'm super weak, Marcus, with a super strong saviour. Let's cling to him together. When we try to get out of that and bolster ourselves and our egos with strength, whether it's through control freakery or whatever it is, then we may feel emotionally less vulnerable. But the thing that God empowers uh, in ministry is weakness. That's when his grace shines through. But it's also the thing that our human nature also finds easy to turn into imposter syndrome. So that's stage number one on the route into ministry-related fear, imposter syndrome. Stage two is what I sometimes call the cell. And it's these next steps that trap us there. So commonly a presenting issue will trigger things, trigger fear emerging, and then cause a longer-standing lurking set of fear factors to emerge. That's why catastrophizing is relatively common. When a straw finally breaks the camel's back, what happens is that a whole lot of longer-term unresolved and buried things emerge with it. And I identify four things that form the cell that closes in around us. It's the combination of isolation, complexity, exhaustion and discouragement. I-C-E-D, iced. Isolation, complexity, exhaustion and discouragement. Many jobs are complex, but brain surgery is complex. 
But it has a team, it has procedures, insurance, safety nets. On the other hand, lots of jobs are isolated, but not particularly complex. I am not sure I know many jobs that are as isolating, but as dealing with very complex issues, intersecting with so many skill sets and needs that you can't actually meet as pastoral ministry in churches. Archbishop Justin Welby observed that the hardest work he had ever done and the most stressful was a parish priest. He says, it was isolated, insatiably demanding, and I was on the whole working without colleagues. That really wears people down. Let three or four different kinds of complex issues coincide, or three or four different tragedies, either in our own lives or in those that we serve and shepherd. Let, let that hit at once. Nobody copes. When we become the vessels for other people's hopes, comforts, fears, tragedies and criticisms, but without safety nets that go with other caring professionals, nobody copes. And the more senior, experienced and competent we get at our ministry work, the less other people think that we need mentoring, counselling and support, despite the fact that the burdens get heavier, the situations that we deal with often become more complex the older we get, more toxic, and our own input tends to get more sporadic. People think that we're up to that because we are trained. Frequently they're wrong. The danger is that we end up as the toxic barrel, the toxic bucket, for more and more difficult issues. I have this image in my mind, uh, maybe you can picture it, but a cartoon nuclear waste barrel with that big yellow radiation sign on the side. And as people come to us and bring their toxic issues to us, we have very few places to unload that for confidentiality's sake. Maybe to our spouse, they really don't have anywhere to unload it. So the danger is, as we end up as other people's toxic bucket for more and more difficult issues, that our overall level of internal toxicity rises and there isn't an outlet for it. Often we're prevented from dealing with these things by some combination of guilt, sadness that we're not coping with it but we can't really tell anybody, church culture and negative repetitive conditioning that leads us to think that it's much better to just put up with the devil we know than the devil we don't or try to deal with it. And that leads to strategies for avoidance and denial rather than trying to renegotiate the conditions that are leading us into fear. And the longer we don't deal with it, of course, the harder it becomes. There are multiple locks that disincentivize dealing with it. So stage three, what are the consequences? Stage one was imposter syndrome. Stage two was the cell of isolation, complexity, exhaustion and discouragement. Stage three, the consequences. Basically, you end up feeling that you permanently have a gun to the back of your head. It could go off at any point. You're the only person who feels that way. Nobody else realises it or sees the gun, but you have a constant fear that you might do something that trips the trigger. Unprocessed emotions don't die. Fear doesn't go away if it's not dealt with. It just gets worse. But we live with this subconscious script that a loaded gun is pointed at us and it might go off unpredictably. So we are not safe. Rather than being safe, we're sucked into uh, what the Big Bang Theory called a vortex of entropy. 
we spiral round and round and down and down into irrationality. So we feel unsupported, insecurity results, subjectivity, only listening to internal dialogue. Then we start to view things through false evaluative lenses that minimise the good and maximise the bad. Paranoia comes out of that and then filling up all our time trying to deliver what we think people are expecting of us, while simultaneously hiding anything that goes wrong and becoming increasingly sensitive to even constructive feedback. We then become increasingly aware of all the things that are necessary to deliver that we're unable to deliver on, and we don't know how to break the cycle. We think that if others don't provide the help that we need, then clearly they're not concerned about us and our ministry. And as one ministry spouse put it, they often feel obliged to collude in our feelings and to affirm how we feel, lest they become part of the perceived problem. Now the result of that is that we wear masks. This whole thing conspires to make us very careful of exposure. We want to appear sorted. We want to appear not fearful. And that's one of the reasons why many people say yes to things that are beyond our capacity, because we don't want other people to think that we're inadequate. But by this point, we already have two faces, and this just adds the charge of hypocrisy to those other fears that we already can't reveal. So we wear masks. And then finally, we go over a cliff. Because this process makes us put more and more effort into delivering what we think is required, and that leads to greater and greater vulnerability to small triggers that finally result in seemingly disproportionate effects and collapses. Catastrophizing. Also, of course, in ministry, we frequently work under highly emotional expectations. When we have energy, energy and exhaustion work in a sort of sine wave cycle. When we have energy, we can push those expectations that we can't cope with onto the back burner. But let something come and weigh heavily upon us. Let us work at 105% for a long time, and then weariness means we no longer have the energy to keep all those things on the back burner. So that the point that fear hits us, the point that we get a trigger, the straw that breaks the camel's back, all the stuff that we've suppressed then also comes off the back burner and it comes piling onto us in the foreground at precisely the time we're wrestling with everything else. This is a feedback loop that if we get into it and leave the patterns unremedied, then fear and burnout are practically inevitable sooner or later. It happens very commonly aged about 45, or when folk have been in ministry for 15 years, because by that point we've had 15 years of patterns that were unsustainable at the start and have got more and more unsustainable the longer we've gone on. So let's have a, a little think to finish about strategies. It's easy to see when we see the process how we get into understanding that we're not really allowed to be human anymore. When you have to turn up in ministry and smile at everyone, help everyone, never gripe and absorb all criticism whilst being unfailingly unruffled and positive, those things are designed to drive us away from experiencing the love of God. Fear from the devil is designed to destroy our fear of the Lord. There are a variety of ways of responding. We can respond inactively, 
So just living in denial and hoping it goes away. We can respond reactively, so we wait for issues with some idea of how we will deal with them, and then we try to deal with them or to avoid, see if we can go round them, park them and circumvent them. Uh, we can adopt unhealthy strategies for self-soothing. Traumatised kids soothe themselves through headbanging, for example. We can find our own equivalents. We can overinvest in good things like overwork or binge eating out of a desire for control, acceptance or to overcome. Or we can invest in bad things as escape. The former is easier to do and admit to doing because the thing that you do to soothe yourself is not inherently sinful and if it's overwork it might get social approval. The question is, how do we handle fear positively and actively rather than reactively, inactively or negatively? What interrupts the cycle of fear and the negative feedback loops that we get into? Isaiah 61 says, I will give them a garment of praise in place of the spirit of heaviness. I will give, says the Lord. We don't get a garment of praise for ourselves. It is given to us through approaching, appreciating, appropriating and enjoying him. That's the first thing to say about interrupting the fear cycle. But when we get into it, even approaching, appreciating, appropriating, enjoying God seem like a long way from us, especially if we're doing this in isolation. We essentially need other people to puncture that downward vortex, the vortex of entropy. We very, very rarely have the ability to do that ourselves. Fear is a multi-layered thing, so you have to be wary of suggesting fixes to deep-rooted issues. It's very rarely like that. Working these things through generally won't have systematic order and movement because dealing with things in one area inevitably has unforeseen consequences in others. So how do we get garments of praise and people who help back into our lives? At the risk of some very simplistic thoughts, here are a few things without which getting out of the cell is much harder. So number one, Intervention. Intervention. Getting out is almost always accompanied by perspective and intervention from outside. People who bring us to a place of safety and sense from where we can work on the longer term and more complex patterns. What does outside intervention help with? Well, the key is objectivity. Breaking those negative feedback loops with positive ones and letting in the light. People who are able to help us re-embrace a healthy spiritual and emotional life. Help us get back into a place of worship and prayer. Ephesians 6 is the basic answer. You put on the armour of God to quench the fiery darts of the devil. The question is, how do we do it practically? And who helps us? How do we spiritually and practically take care to avoid his fiery darts of fear? Something else that intervention can help us with is repentance and confession. Part of being trapped in the cell is that we're in there with our own sin. Fear isn't just about what comes from outside. Our sin can produce that and magnify it as well. And wholeness is never something we get for ourselves. 
Intervention can help in getting structure for taming impossible demands and patterns. It can help with mediation in situations that have gone sour and are precipitating fear. It's basically about other people being our source of regulation when we are unable to regulate ourselves. Prayer, counsel, support, scaffolding that helps us trust and seek the Lord in practical ways and works with us to clear out those things that are doing the opposite. That's the first thing, is intervention. Second, repair and recovery. With the help of intervention, we start to regain some equilibrium and objectivity. And then a little bit of repair and recovery starts to become possible. Some of the routes out of fear are likely to include relational things, so spiritually encouraging friends, counsel, support that combats isolation, spiritual factors, rest, prayer, worship, emotional factors, refocusing our gaze, re-energising, physical factors, sleep, routines, habitual routines that promote freedom, cognitive factors, recalibration, understanding of what's taken us into fear, constructing positive things that break the negative loops, dismantling warped and unhealthy strategies. Practical or situational factors. Revising or reforming the conditions and historical situations that have provoked fear. Renegotiating impossible demands. Repairing situations of breakdown where we've been the ones that have done the damage and have created the fear. A vicar said to me, um, I want to show you my job description. And he showed me a job description that went on and on and on. He was expected to do absolutely everything for three whole parishes and it was crushing him and he said but I can't go and renegotiate those impossible demands they're killing me but I can't renegotiate people will say you're the one who's paid to do it and I said to him well if you don't then you're going to be on uh, the casualty list so it's worth having a go and he went and talked to his PCCs and they were so understanding and accommodating and helpful and he simply hadn't believed that that could be possible. Maybe if you're in that situation and it feels that renegotiating impossible demands is something that you just can't think about doing, it might actually be better than you think when you have a go. And repair and recovery is also likely to include repentance and building repentance into our lives as a daily pattern. In fact, building all kinds of habitual daily things into our lives so that we have robust spiritual disciplines and careful use of our diaries and when we say yes and when we say no. I also think there's a huge value in professional supervisors, or mentors, people who help us worship. Whatever it does that does it for you, don't wait for fear to strike before you get those things. Structures for input, scaffolding, people round about us. Lots of people think that we need that less the longer we go on in ministry. I think it's the complete opposite. There is one positive thing about fear, and that is that it can act as a canary in the mine. It can help highlight that things are wrong under the surface, and it can force us to identify what those things are. Of course, a lot of the time it doesn't do that. I hope this discussion has helped you begin to think about pathways that we take into fear in order to avoid it, or to start to think about what repair, recovery, structures, regulation and people will help you move out of it.
Perfect love casts out fear. Satan would love to rob us of that and use fear to sabotage and steal the joy in God, which is the strength for our lives and our service. If we've been touching on issues that are live for you, it might help you to try to write down some kind of fear standard operating procedure. I have a list of phone numbers that I stick up close to my desk that when it hits me, I just know where to ring and what to do to see if I can nip it in the bud. The things that I want to do that stop the cycle, ideally before I spiral too far down it. What would constitute a healthy response for you? What conditions, spaces, routines, what people, inputs and Sabbath help you get into that healthy place with the Lord? And do your current life patterns encourage it, hinder it, or downright stop it? Well, I hope that's been useful. Thank you for listening. Hope you'll tune in again next time. Once again, if you hit the subscribe button, you'll get notifications every time we do new episodes. God bless. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Living Leadership Podcast. For more about Living Leadership, to connect with us, to give, or to sign up for regular prayer news, please visit livingleadership.org. Blessings.